Second Samuel chapter eleven. Sin is an ugly, sick, brutal, distorted, twisted, awful thing. And if you want to know what sin looks like in its fullest form, you look at Jesus on the cross. We're going to see the ultimate expression of sin, it's it's Calvary. If you want to understand its brutality, it's what happened when Jesus hung that day in our stead. I can't go into detail, um, but I, I do. I need to share with you. One of the things that's difficult for me in in preaching and teaching the Word is that there's something going on in my life personally. It's real hard to hide it. And it's real hard just to stand up and pretend like everything's hunky dory and preach the Word. And you know, I'm, I'm not good at, at pretense, and um, and yet I have to be sensitive. So. I just need you all to know that um, sin hurts and affects everybody. And uh, last night was a really rough night in my household. Um, we didn't get much sleep at all. And without explaining why, and, and if you want to know, I mean, you, know you, you can ask me afterwards. But and if you'd like to pray for our family, that'd be great. We're not falling apart. We're good. We're, we're okay. But just, just some things have gone on. And whether it's my sin against somebody else or someone else's sin against me, sin is just ugly. And sin hurts all of us. And we have to recognize the eternal truth that there's not one of us better than another when it comes to sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the deal. And it's easy sometimes, especially as Christians, when we start living a a real straight and narrow life, it's easy to begin to think that maybe we are a little bit better than those who are really messed up, as we might say. Those whose lives are in the in the in the toilet, you know, and we're up here going, Yeah, but when we got together, praise God we're, you know, who we are. And uh, the only thing I can say to that is praise God that Jesus is who He is and that I get to know Him. But that being said, I want you to understand that what I share about sin this morning is not just from the text, but it's from personal experience, it's from frustration. Now we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba, so don't get the wrong idea. My, the stuff that I was dealing with is not the same as this. <laughs> but, um, but sin impacts us all and it's painful. And I want you to know that the place I come from this morning as I teach is, is with a very real and, and immediate reality of, of how painful um, sin can be. So with that in mind, let's, let's pray for a moment. We'll get into the, the Word today. Lord Jesus, I pray that your anointing will remain in this place and, and that your anointing will be on the teaching of your Word. And Jesus, that your Spirit would speak to us. Speak to our hearts and to our minds and speak clearly. And Lord, clear out all the junk that's in our ears that that we might truly hear what you have for us today. I pray for insight and understanding, Lord, for our own lives, but also, Lord, insight and understanding for the lives of friends and family that are all around us. As Lane's heart is so broken for his own family, so we pray each one of us with hearts broken for family members and friends who don't know you, Jesus, and who are walking in sin and who are, who are struggling with things that they ought not struggle with because they just don't know of your grace and your mercy. 
Father, give us understanding that as we walk in this world, we might not only see the sin in our own lives and be able to deal with it effectively, but we might see in other people's lives and, and have compassion and show kindness and learn how to show grace while at the same time not just showing blanket acceptance for things that are wrong. Lord, I think that's one of the toughest things for me is how do I walk that line of extending mercy and grace when, when, when a person needs discipline? How do I know, Lord Jesus? Well, I just pray for wisdom in these things for all of us today. And I pray that what you have in, in a message already prepared prior to last night, that, uh, that your word would speak to us today very clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Uriah came to him, and David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and all the servants of the lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go down to my house and to drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went down to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. The word of the Lord doesn't pull any punches. The Spirit of the Lord tells it like it is. The Father doesn't gloss over sinful acts of His people, whether great people or small people, whether great sin or small sin. The Lord doesn't disguise things or nice it up for our reading in Scripture. And I am so thankful. 
Because we don't have a book that's filled with people whose lives are unattainable to us. People like David who we look at and say, how could I ever possibly be like him? Well, it's not that difficult, especially if you read this chapter. (laughs) You could be like David in a heartbeat. (laughs) I don't recommend that you follow this passage as your example. But throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we see people, in the New Testament Scriptures, we see people falling, sinful, and God doesn't cover up. He lets it all out there. History as it was. Why is that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul writes that these, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. All of these stories, all of these examples in Scripture, we have both good and bad. It's so that we can look at them and learn from them and not follow the same path in the the case of sin. But of course, certainly follow the same path in the case of righteousness and prayer and the love of the Word and things that we see in these people as well. There's so many good things about David that we can emulate. The fact that he constantly inquires of the Lord. Man, I want to be like David in that way. The fact that he loves the Word. I want to be like David in that way. The fact that he's a man after God's own heart. If there's any one phrase that I would love to be written on my tombstone, which I don't plan on having a tombstone because I want to be raptured before that happens, but if there's any one phrase I'd like to be about me, that's it. A man after God's own heart. So there's so much about David that's good. And we can benefit from his victories. We can also benefit from his sad failures. And the sad failures of those who went before. Heroes of faith who were at the same time frail, flawed, fallible people just like us. Think about righteous Noah. Noah, one of eight people left in the entire world who was righteous enough that God calls on him. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord and the Lord saved Noah and his family. And at the end of Noah's story, he ends up naked and drunk. Righteous Noah. Think about faithful Abraham who believed the Lord and so it was credited to him as righteousness. Long before we knew what we know, Abraham believed God. Faithful Abraham who slept with his handmaid. There's Jacob who God loved, who was a liar and a deceiver. There's Moses the deliverer who obviously had some anger management issues. And you can go person by person by person throughout the Bible and the list goes on. God understands our human frailty. And I'm so thankful. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 6 says all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And as I quoted earlier, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here's something interesting to me. When we study the lives of the Old Testament saints and people like David and uh, among others, it's interesting that when described in the New Testament, they are not remembered for their sin. If you want to know about the sin of David, you got to go, you got to go to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures. Because you will not hear about the sin of David in the New Testament. Why is that? Because the Old Testament shows us law the New Testament shows us grace 
And it's a wonderful example before us. And David, David understood grace. Remember last week, Mephibosheth, we talked about him and how David showed him loving kindness. That Hebrew word chesed, which means grace in all of its wonder and grandeur. But this morning, David's behavior stands in stark contrast to that. Chapter 9, David is a man of grace. Chapter 11, David is a man of sin. A man of darkness, a man of brutality. And this is his most infamous sin. Now, please understand that as this chapter begins, David is 50 years old. He's not a young man. This is not something that can be blamed on the passions of youth. This is a 50-year-old guy who's got some mileage behind him when this takes place. And it's the time when the kings went to war, we're told in verse 1. The time when the kings go out to battle. In the spring, we have football season. It's almost over today. We have baseball season, basketball season. They had battle season. And it was just after the latter rains in Israel, when the rains ceased and it began to dry up in the land, it was the best time before summer came because then it was too hot to fight and the winter was too wet to fight. But in the spring, it was a perfect time to fight. And they literally would shut down their wars and they would come back and fight another day. They would come back and fight in the spring when the kings went out to war. Usually, the kings themselves led their armies in battle. And throughout David's life, up to this point, we've seen David mostly leading his people to battle. But it's starting to change, subtly. In fact, back in chapter 10, verse 7, we're told that David sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men, out to war. It's the first time in David's life, at least that we have recorded, the first time where he stays back in Jerusalem and lets Joab go and fight instead. This is the second time. David is entering into a pattern of staying home and sending someone else to fight. Why? I think he was getting more comfortable. Perhaps his, his palace made of cedar and stone was, was far better than the home of his younger days when he had no problem going out to the war. The home of his younger days. Do you remember what that was? It was the caves of Adullam and Engedi when he was hiding out from Saul. Uncomfortable, stony, rocky places. Places that could be shelter, but certainly not home. Now David is in Zion. Now David has a palace. And now he's comfortable and relaxed. And on this warm spring evening in Jerusalem, David's thinking, it's good to be home. I'm 50 now. I've been fighting all my life. Take heed, my friends. Prosperity and creature comforts can easily lead us to spiritual apathy. Proverbs 132 says, The waywardness of the, of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. Paul says, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Please understand, the Lord is not saying that getting rich is a bad thing. He's saying, be careful. Watch out. Don't get comfortable in the life that you're living now. Don't let the amassing of things here and the pleasure and the relaxation and the joy that comes from that, don't let that take precedence over the life that you are going to have there. That's the main focus for all of us. 
I shared before, I, I think the Lord, in all of His graciousness, knows what each of us can handle. And doesn't give us a penny more. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Because I know myself that if I were to win the lottery tomorrow, it would mess up my life. So I don't buy tickets. Just avoid the whole thing. Take care with those creature comforts. God is not as concerned about our temporal comfort as He is with our eternal condition. At the beginning of our story, we get this sense that David is lulled into complacency. He's lazing around the palace. He's lounging in his bed, even throughout the whole day. He didn't get up this morning. What do you mean by that? Look at verse 2. It says, When evening came, David arose from his bed. And the word evening there is not night. It's not in the middle of the night. He woke up because he was having trouble sleeping, so he decided to go, go for a little walk. This is evening. The word evening here in the Hebrew indicates sunset. So he's in his bed before sunset, lounging around, probably eating grapes, I don't know, but just taking it easy, not really doing anything while the battle's raging over against their enemies, and Joab and the guys, and Uriah, they're all fighting. What's David doing? Hanging out, kicking back, relaxing. And David wanders out to his rooftop patio, which even today in Jerusalem you can see this, that's, that's where the patios are, they're on the roof. Flat roofs. And go out there and hang out and enjoy the, the cool evening breeze. The days can get warm in Jerusalem. And he's out there walking along the rooftop patio, the cool evening air of Zion, when he saw her. And that's the key phrase in verse 2. He saw. He saw Bathsheba bathing somewhere within, obviously, eyeshot of his palace. He saw. First John chapter 2, verse 15 tells us, Do not love the, the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The Apostle John describes three characteristics of the world in that passage. Three very simple characteristics. The world is defined as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Let's go to the movies. I mean, doesn't that sound like Hollywood to you? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. I heard somewhere recently where they were talking about the, the Academy Awards and the Grammys and all these award shows that are being shut down because of the writer's strike in Hollywood. And the stars are really upset because one of them said, it's like they canceled prom. I'm so sorry. You poor thing. You didn't get to stand up and receive accolades for being a trained monkey. I'm so sorry. It's incredible to me. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It ain't Hollywood, gang. It's the sin nature. By the way, this isn't just the story of David's lust giving birth to sin. Bathsheba shares, I believe, some responsibility here. What is this beauty doing bathing in full view of the patio of the king's palace? What is she thinking? If she was bathing innocently, she was at least bathing irresponsibly. J. Vernon McGee writes this, and this cracked me up, I just got to share this. He says, at the risk of sounding prude, let me say we are living in a day when women's dresses become a great temptation to men. I wonder how many women, even Christian women, realize what they are doing when they wear certain types of, app of apparel. 
And he said, I've attended services in many churches when a soloist would get up to sing and carry you to the gates of heaven. And then I've seen her sit down and carry you to the gates of hell. <laughs> and something that's light, that is just as funny, Proverbs 11.21, As a ring of gold in a pig's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. A ring of gold in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion, or the word is also taste. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter writes, Women, he's speaking specifically to you, your adornment must not be external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. He's not saying that you can't do that. He's saying that's not the point. He's saying that your adornment should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. In what way? What was the adornment of what we would call holy women? Discretion. Modesty. Holiness. And ladies hear this. These things are most beautiful and attractive to the Lord. So my question to you is, who do you want to impress? That guy or your God? Dress to impress Him. Guys, we need to note this, however, that even if Bathsheba wasn't using discretion, she is not faulted in the scripture for David's sin. David is held completely responsible. The Bible doesn't deal with her. doesn't point to her and say, what was she thinking? What was she doing? It focuses on David and his responsibility and his reaction and his response. In Iran, they're relaxing dress codes. You probably are relieved to hear that. Um, they're changing things a bit. They're allowing now Iranian women no longer to have to cover their faces. You know, they, they don't have to wear the, the face cover anymore. However, they're having a huge problem in Iran, a lust problem right now. Specifically brought on when the curl of a woman's hair drops down below her headdress. Guys are going nuts. <laughs> What's your point? My point is this, no matter how discreetly a woman is dressed, guys, we are still responsible for where our minds go. I had a friend in California. She was on our, our youth staff and she was married her and her husband, friends of Cheryl's and mine, and, and she made a joking statement one time about red flannel says no. I'll let you think about what that means. Red flannel says no. You know what, gang? <laughs> she could be wearing garbage bags and army boots and it would still not be no for most men. <laughs> You might say, well, if they would dress more conservatively, conservatively, I wouldn't be tempted to lust. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. In the same way that David was, Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. Listen to what Jesus said. Out of the heart comes adultery. Not out of what she's wearing. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help my thoughts because of what she had. No, it's a heart problem. And if you struggle, guys, let me say this specifically, if you struggle with sexual things, if you struggle with internet pornography, 
If you struggle with, with watching shows on HBO that you shouldn't be watching or going to movies that you shouldn't be seeing or, or being engaged in these things, if you struggle with that, it is not an eye problem. It is a heart problem. And that's where it has to be dealt with. Between you and the Lord in the heart. Because our hearts desperately sick, the Bible tells us. In verse 3, it says, David sent and inquired about the woman, because he had already seen her. He saw, he saw, he saw in his heart, oh, you know, I don't have enough wives and concubines yet. I need this one too. He had plenty by that time. Not that he should have, but he sent and inquired about this woman, and, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The adulterous affair gang, didn't begin with adultery. The adulterous affair began in the heart of David. And when he saw her, the bell rang. And off he went. Matthew 5.27, Jesus said, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at a man, or looks at a woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's already done. I think I shared before in reading this passage, when I was a kid, I, you know, especially a young Christian kid, growing up in the church, I thought, okay, there are certain things I want to make sure never happen in my life. I never want to commit fornication. I never want to commit adultery. I don't want to be one of those people. And then I ran across this verse and realized for years I have already been committing adultery. Because if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. If your right eye, Jesus says, makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now we take that spiritually, figuratively, otherwise every man in here would be blind. What we need, gentlemen, what we need, and ladies, you can help us with this, but what we need is the renewing of our minds and our hearts. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, as we go through the rest of this, I want you to see something about the nature of sin and how it works. Sin is progressive. It is always progressive in nature. It is not content to stay put, to stand still. It's the progression of transgression. Watch this in David's life. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now they've already committed adultery together, which began prior to that with lust. And now she's pregnant. So David decides, he figures out a way that he's going to try and cover this up. If he can get Uriah home and get him to go sleep with Bathsheba, he's off the hook. Because then when she has the baby, oh, it must have been Uriah's when he came home from the war and spent the night with his wife, right? It's a very sordid tale. He sent for Uriah. And verse 7 says, when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people, you know, playing it off. How's the war going? I don't know what David's relationship with Uriah was like before he met Bathsheba. Probably not at all. It's probably a little strange. You know, a runner would come up to Joab and whisper something to him, and Joab would call uh, Uriah, come here. Yeah, the king wants you. I do. What I do. And so off Uriah goes, and he comes back to the castle, and he, he comes to David, and David starts talking about the war and everything else, but what he really wants is to get Uriah home. 
and Uriah won't go there. And it's a little frustrating because you put yourself in David's shoes, especially if you're in that place of sin and you're trying to cover something up and you can't get it covered up. He tries to send Uriah home and Uriah sleeps out in the front door. So what are you doing, man? I brought you home. You can go drink. You can go sleep with your wife. You can have a great time. You get a break from battle. And Uriah, listen to me, Uriah is a good man. I never really thought about the person of Uriah before this study. He is a soldier. He is a fighter and he is committed and loyal and he will not have privileges that his fellow soldiers don't get. He refuses them. It says when David, when they told David saying he did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Why did you not come? Did you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And he said, The ark and Israel, verse 11, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and to drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Listen, Uriah the soldier knows that the battle is intense. He knows the battle is intense. He says, the ark's in a tent. And Israel and Judah, they're intense. Joab and all the men of the field, they're intense. Literally, they're sleeping in tents. He knows the battle is intense. Are you getting the pun? Okay, good. But there's a reason I'm saying this. And I'm not just trying to, to, to pull a pun out of this. He understands something. Uriah's name, by the way, means God is my flame. God is my flame. There is an intensity of battle. And Uriah understands I have no business hanging out at home when the ark of God is in a tabernacle, in a tent. When the people of God, the men of war, are right now sleeping in tents, in temporary shelters. The battle is in tents. It's in tabernacles. It is transitory. It is temporary. Our battle here is not long term. So don't settle down. And I think that Uriah's honor is beginning to shame David a little bit. Because what was David doing? Hanging out at home. While the ark of God was in a tent. While the men of David were fighting. And they were in tents. And Uriah himself said, I will not go home while the battle rages. I will not settle down. I will not settle in. I'll sleep on the floor out here if you have to have me in Jerusalem, King David. But I will not relax while the battle is raging. We can learn something from that, gang. The battle is intense. Not in nice, comfortable homes with big screen TVs and Super Bowl Sunday. The battle is intense. So David tries to push things along. He tries to get Uriah drunk. That's the next move. Here, drink up, buddy. And he thinks, once I get him drunk and the inhibitions are down, so that's what David's thinking. All I need to do is lower his inhibitions, then get him home. He'll sleep with her. That'll be great. I got it covered. And drunken Uriah still says, I'm not going home. I'm staying right here. And he won't. His honor is deep. I admire this guy. Uriah. Verse 18. 
verse 18 tells us after Uriah had been sent back and by the way it's, it's ironic David writes the letter to Joab that's, his, that's basically Uriah's death sentence rolls it up and hands it to Uriah to carry back himself see how how far the sin is progressing in David's mind now it's just sick and Uriah dies as the men withdraw from him verse 18 says Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war He charged the messenger saying when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? We read about that in the book of Judges. Why, why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. See what Joab's doing is now he's in on it. He's read what David wants. And so he's sending a message back to David to kind of cover up the fact that they were conspiring to kill Uriah. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Now listen to David's response, verse 25. Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Hey, you know what? People die in battle. That's right, David. People do die in battle, especially when they're set up to die. He just plays this thing off. And now David's thinking he got away with it scot-free. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Verse 27, When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. And to the people, it must have looked good. Oh, what a compassionate king we've got. The woman loses her husband in battle, and she goes through this period of mourning, and what does King David do? He takes her under his wing. He brings her to the palace to shelter her and protect her and take care of her. What a gracious, wonderful king we've got. But the Bible tells us the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God knew exactly what was going on. When David got up off of his bed that evening and wandered out onto the patio... When he saw Bathsheba, before he even saw her, was he thinking, I wonder who I can kill today. I wonder whose life I can destroy. I mean, I'm relaxed here in Jerusalem. I wonder if there's someone who I can just mess up the world for. You see, no one thinks that way. No one wakes up and thinks, how can I mess up my family today? How can I make life harder for my, my friends? I know I'll sin. Nobody thinks that way. But David's failure is the prime example of the progression of transgression. The way sin works, the way it moves. In David's case, the seductive spiral began with lust. It continues downward with adultery. It picks up speed from adultery to deceit and cover-ups. And finally it spins out of control with murder. We watch David step this thing out. And along the way... I, I can't imagine that he was, he was specifically strategizing each step. This is what the sin nature does, gang. 
is it starts off with something in the mind or in the heart. And it begins just to get the ball rolling and we think we can handle it and it gets rolling faster than we can handle until somebody is dead. That's, by the way, the wages of sin. The Bible tells us, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. James describes this whole process, what happened to David and what can so easily happen in our lives. James 1.14, he says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. There's number one. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that's the progression of transgression. Lust to sin to death. Lust to sin to death. And the end game of sin in our lives is always death. Rick, you talk about sin like it's some kind of a entity in and of itself. Well, I talk about sin in the same way we talk about the war on terror. Terror in and of itself is not a being. Terror is the actions of another or others against a people. Sin in the same way is not a being, obviously, in and of itself, but Satan is very real. And demons are very real. And we have a rebellious sin nature in us, a, a, a propensity to sin in our lives. And the enemy knows that, and he is a terrorist, and he will use whatever means possible to get us into the place of lust. Not to death, not even to sin, but just to get us into that place of lust. Things like, hey David, you're 50 years old, man, back off, relax. Uriah knows the battle's intense, but David, stay home. Take it easy. Nothing wrong with that. It's not sin for David to stay back at the castle or the palace and send out the warriors. That's okay. That's fine. David, it's a little warm in your bed tonight. Why don't you go for a walk on the patio? Okay. Not a problem. Again, nothing done wrong there. He's out on the patio. There's Bathsheba. And the enemy would whisper, check her out. And rather than like men before him, like Joseph... I love the story of Joseph who when presented with an opportunity to adultery he ran he took off running at full gate I mean I love that that is the right thing to do when when confronted by sin get out of there we don't see David doing that he could have been out on the patio just looking over Jerusalem and gone okay that's enough for me hello and go written a psalm (laughs) and that would have been a good move but he doesn't And the lust enters in and begins to progress. Wow, she is something else. Hmm. We find out who she is. And he's hooked. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And the wages of sin is death. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And you might protest and say, Yeah, but David didn't die. God didn't cause him to die. No, Uriah did. The wages of sin is death. It might not even be your death. It might not even be your trouble or your problems. But I guarantee you, sin is going to result in fallout somewhere. Uriah died. And by the way, so will the child who was born out of this sordid affair. That's not fair. The wages of sin is death. Yeah, but the child did nothing wrong. Uriah did nothing wrong. The wages of sin is death. David thinks he's cleverly covered his tracks. Thinks he got away with it. More than nine months in David's life go by without any fallout at all. 
Ever think about that? From the commission of this and the, the murder of Uriah, nothing happened to David. A month went by. No one said anything. Two months, nothing's going on. Nine months. And finally he brings Bathsheba into his house and marries her and everything is just fine. She has the baby. The baby is born healthy. I got away with it. That's past. That's history. Okay, I can move on now in the Lord. I will just let that one go. Right, right, Father? Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And once found out, this sin will come crashing in on David like nothing in his life. It will flatten him. And the rest of David's reign, as we will see in the next few weeks, the rest of his reign will be tarnished by this sin. His family will be a disaster from here on out because of this sin. You skip over to chapter 12, look at verse 9. God is speaking to David through Nathan the prophet and he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. You didn't even use your own sword. He used the enemy of the Lord's sword to kill this guy. Now therefore, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And indeed, his own son Absalom is going to go in and take his father's wives. In full sight of everybody in Israel, they will know that David's son is sleeping with his father's wives. It's a mess. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, verse 12, and listen to this, you did it secretly, but I will do the same before all Israel and under the sun. What you did in secret is coming out. Your sin will find you out. It's the way it is. I, I've shared this before. This is a spiritual law that is as absolute as the physical law of gravity. Your sin will find you out. Drop a basketball from your hand. It will go down. Sin will take you down. Now listen. For me, the most dramatic moment of this entire story is not the lust on the rooftop. It's not the adultery in the king's chambers. It's not the treacherous death of Uriah on the battlefield. The most dramatic moment is when grace came. Verse 13 of chapter 12, David David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. By the way, his confession came after he was caught. And we often think, yeah, but you didn't confess beforehand. You know what? Confession is confession. Whether you were found out and then confessed, or you confessed before you were found out, confession is confession. Our hearts, our souls need to confess what has happened in our lives. As much as we, for our own hearts, need to repent, we, for our own hearts, need to confess. Because until we do, we are trying to hide from it. We can't accept the discipline, the loving discipline, or the grace of the Lord. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, and listen to this, blows my mind, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. What? He murdered a guy. 
The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has taken away your sin? Well, where did He put it? Where did it go? Directly on the shoulders of David's son, Jesus. This is one of the most ironic things in all Scripture. Is the sin of David rested on the shoulders of the son of David, Jesus Christ, at the cross. That the one who would come from David's own seed would be the salvation of David himself. Matthew 22, verse 42. The Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Mashiach? What do you think about him? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. They knew their Hebrew scriptures well. The son of David would be Mashiach. So he said to them, Well, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? (laughs) It tells us that the Pharisees didn't dare ask him another question from that day forward. We're going to have to go confer about that when we'll get back to you, Jesus. I mean, he just stumped them. But he made something very clear. That the son of David would be David's Lord. That the son of David would be David's salvation. That nobody in all history would be able to look back at David and say, Wow, it's because of the sinless life of David that a sinless Jesus would arise. No, it's not. David was a sinner like everybody else. It's because of who Jesus is that David could ever again be called righteous before the Lord. Jesus said in Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And so God purposed this all ahead of time that even David himself would be saved by the grace of David's son, Jesus. And you might say, it's still not fair. It's not fair that God shows David grace and says, The Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die, when Uriah did die. And the innocent child will die. And you're right, it's not fair. It's not fair by our standards. It is not fair by our understanding of righteousness. But neither is your grace and neither is mine. My salvation is not fair. There are other people who have lived much better lives than mine who deserve far more than me to be with the Lord. And there are other people who are far better than them who deserve to be with the Lord. And even the far best of us don't deserve to be with the Lord. Grace is not fair. Grace is not fair. By our standards of rightness and wrongness, our lust, which gives birth to sin, should bring about our own death. But, Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, I would much rather teach on grace than on sin. I love talking about grace. Last week, talking about Mephibosheth, that was an easy message to teach. 
Because that's where I want to be, right there in the middle of grace, talking about the loving kindness of God. Because if not for grace, we would have no hope in our dealings with sin. But did you know that God's grace not only strengthens us, not only saves us for eternity, but strengthens us against sin now? And this is stunning to me. The grace of God poured out in our lives doesn't just prepare us for eternity. doesn't just secure our place in heaven. Oh, it does that, but it does something far more. It strengthens us right now. This verse, Romans 16, 19. Paul says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. I want you to be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. You know, the Bible, though it tells us these stories throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you get from the New Testament, you don't get explicit descriptions of sin. You don't get evil poured out. You know, even in the story of David and Bathsheba, all we know is that David saw her, she was bathing, and he lay with her. And that's all it tells us. It doesn't go into graphic, you know, romance novel detail about the tryst between David and Bathsheba. Why? Because the Lord wants us to be innocent with evil. Wise in what is good. Innocent toward evil. And listen to this. Romans 16.20. You got you ought to underline it, circle it, highlight it in your Bibles. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not under his feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Which means that by grace I have power to stomp sin in my life. And we talk a lot about the sin nature and the struggle of sin and the the civil war that that is lifelong that goes on in our lives. But we can stomp sin by the grace of God. We can not sin. We can choose to say, no, I will not go there. I will live righteously before you. Then we're going to trip. But by the grace of God, we now have a power in our lives. We don't have to keep wallowing and every Sunday coming back and taking communion and going, I'm so sorry for this week. I'm so sorry for this week. I'm so sorry for this week. We can, by the power of grace, stomp sin in our lives. Choose to walk away from it. Or in Joseph's case, to run. We can say, I will not live this way. We consider David's failure this morning not so that we can feel better about our own sin. Go, oh good, he's just like I am. Whew. David, David's a good guy before God and I, I can't be too. That's not the point. We talk about David's story so that we can learn to avoid the progression of transgression. So that we can see what happened, how it works, and we can say no to it when we're alerted. That we can have red flags going off when we're in a danger zone. Alarms ringing in our spirit that says, don't go there. Don't choose that. Warning. Danger. You know, like the robot in Lost in Space. Danger, Will Robinson. I mean, that'd be great if every one of us had an anti-sin robot that walked alongside us and every time we got into a dangerous place, danger, danger, don't go there. Turn around, run. You know, that would be wonderful. Guess what? We have that. It's called the Word of God. It's also called the Spirit of the Lord who resides within you. You have the warning time. 
You have the signal. You have the grace to step on and say no to sin. On a warm spring evening in Israel, David should have been fighting against the enemy. Instead, of, instead he was taken back, allowing the enemy to come in. This is the last thing I want to tell you this morning. Some would say, once they hit about you know, 50 or 60 or 70 in their life, some might say, I've been fighting for years. And it's time to take the season off. I've been working really hard. I've been serving. It's time for someone else to do it. We, we had dinner with, with the McGee's on Friday night. And by the way, it was really good, so if they invite you over, it'll be good food. In fact, I would encourage you to invite yourselves. In fact, today, for Super Bowl Sunday, go to the McGee's, okay? <laughs> we, were, we were talking about just several different things, and, and Alicia was talking about how she had served as a church secretary in, in England when they lived there. And when they got back here, she was like, man, I just, I just don't want to do that. And you know what, what the Lord told her to do? I got to be about my neighborhood. I love that. I got to be about knowing the people in my, whether, whether I want to or not. You know, I, I, got, I related when you said, you know, when the garage door opens, I just kind of want to get in and close the door. <laughs> I mean, that's me. I just, man, just let me get home. But they have made their neighborhood their business. That's the place of the sharing of the gospel. They have a small group that, that meets every other week. About every other week. There are people going to their small group that don't even go to the bridge. Do you believe that? But what about our church? You know, what about us? That's the right heart. That it doesn't matter where you are in life, that you don't kick back from the battle. I've been serving for years. Time for someone else to help in kids' ministry. Gave you a little plug there. Time for someone else to do the work. Time for someone else to be out sharing things. Someone else needs to move to San Antonio because I'm not doing I have, man, I've just I'm tired. I've fought a lot of battles in my life. Time to kick back. I've gone to Bible studies for years, so it's time to start taking some time off. I don't I'm not gonna go. We're sitting what, second Samuel? I've read Second Samuel. I don't say this to guilt trip anybody in disservice. But you need to understand, if you have these thoughts, let it be a gentle warning. You are being set up. You're being set up. If your thoughts are, I'm going to back off and let somebody else do it. I'm going to step back. Other people can serve. I've worked really hard in my life, and now is my time to retire. You are being set up just like David was. Uriah understood it. The battle was intense. And so he did not want to leave the battle. He wanted to fight for his God. David was kicking back. The safest place to be in the Lord is on the front line of battle. The safest place to be is serving God day in and day out. Where you don't have time to go mess with other things, to hang out on the rooftop and, you know, check out the world. The safest place to be is fighting for God. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 8, where David was leading up through that whole chapter, we studied this a couple weeks ago, in chapter 8, no, I guess it was just Wednesday night, David is securing the borders. And David is fighting all of the enemies of Israel. And it tells us twice in that chapter, the Lord helped David wherever he went. When David was fighting, God was helping. But when David was kicking back... He was on his own. The Lord helped David in the battle. On the front lines of prayer, 
which by the way is the reason that anything good is happening at the bridge is the amount of prayer that's coming up out of this place or on the front line of the word which I would say secondarily to prayer is the reason why anything good is happening in this place on the front lines of fellowship drawing people into your homes maybe people you don't even really know that well yet to talk about Jesus taking the risk to uproot yourself and talk about Jesus and have fellowship in the church don't kick back engage don't kick back fight Godly service, and listen to this, godly service is as much about protecting your heart in the Lord as it is about caring for others. That's the part that we miss. That's why we take time off from godly service. Because we say, you know what, someone else can take care of others. Yeah, but who's taking care of your heart? When you're serving the Lord, your heart is being protected. It's the greatest place to find protection in the battle against the enemy. Serving God fighting for him don't stay home don't settle for comfort now the battle is intense our home is in heaven being prepared for us even as I speak so the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 10.37 yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Don't shrink back. Don't stay home. Fight the good fight of the faith. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Worship team, you guys can come back up. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for the example that we have set forth in David. The dark and sinful example. Father, I pray that it will serve as warning for us in our own lives and compassion for us as we consider the lives of others who are struggling. But Father, I, I ask, would you, would you continue to do what I see you doing all over this fellowship? Would you continue to empower us to engage in ministry and service and faithful fighting? Whether it's for something we're doing right here at the church or engaging in the ministry of our homes and our neighborhoods, Father, and our jobs. I pray that we will be people sent out and people fired up. People like Uriah, whose flame was his God. May we have a flame in our hearts to speak your word with boldness and to go forth in this region in this world with the name of Jesus Christ on our lips and as we pray if there are any of any of you all this morning who are struggling with with some kind of unconfessed or secret sin I invite you to tell the Lord right now I invite you to ask him for his forgiveness he is waiting to wash you clean Father, forgive us our sins. And teach us to forgive others. In Jesus' name.